Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the late 1870s, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad cut pay for workers by 10%. The workers erupted. There were bloody strikes, and the strikes in which many people died, property was set on fire, they were not just because of one decision by one railroad. They were about unfairness. In those last decades of the 19th century, labor conditions and pay seemed morally wrong to many people. Work on railroads and in coal mines and in steel mills, it was backbreaking. It was poorly paid. And meanwhile, a few fabulously rich men controlled huge swaths of the economy, often by eliminating the competition. One woman from Illinois, Elizabeth McGee, felt so enraged by the situation that she created a board game to show people what was really going on in the country and what had to be changed. She called it the landlord's game, and she brought it to a game manufacturer, Parker Brothers. Parker Brothers took a look at it, and they rejected it. They thought it was way too complicated. It wasn't until decades later, until handmade copies of the landlord's game had already become super popular, that Parker Brothers finally bought the rights. But by that time, it had a simpler title, Monopoly. Author Tristan Donovan argues that board games have reflected culture for a long time, which may be why they're making a major comeback. He's the author of the book, It's All a Game, the history of board games from Monopoly to Settlers of Catan. Tristan, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on. So let's start right there with Monopoly. Um, Why would somebody who cared about an issue, and Elizabeth McGee cared about a a fairer tax system in her mind, why would you create a board game to kind of make this social political point? Well, she wanted to get the message out as widely as possible. And she tried many different routes. Um, She tried writing essays and articles, but she felt, you know, that's not connecting with the mass of people if just sort of writing in some obscure journal so she thought a game would be a great way to teach children particularly about the values she wanted to get across mm-hmm. and in a kind of safe way that kind of didn't feel too political it's like oh you can play a game and also learn about why her tax ideals were better right did you feel like in in researching tons and tons of board games did you feel like they were often created to make a political point or to make a social point Actually, I think Monopoly was quite rare in having its origins in a political point. Mm. Often there wasn't much thought behind it in terms of politics. It was more, oh, what will be fun? Mm -hmm. But I think as time went on, sort of board games get attached to politics in in ways they don't expect to be. So um, Game of Life, for example, the way it's evolved kind of reflects how society changes and our ideals change. So you see the kind of more gas-guzzling cars of the original 1960 edition becoming more eco-friendly after the oil crisis. So things like that sort of affect board games. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things about Monopoly is that, you know, it was created, as I said, to show like, oh, there's all these monopolists. They are hoarding everything for themselves. They're taking, they're crushing everybody else. And the message of the game, I would argue, was totally lost because in Monopoly, what you try to do is crush everybody else. And But people want to be monopolists. It doesn't really teach people be, having a monopoly is bad. It taught people like, man, I wish it could be that guy, the really rich guy who has the monopoly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it backfired so spectacularly, that idea. Yeah. Um, obviously, sort of the message still in there. You 
play with four people, three of you are going to end up bankrupt and destitute, right. but one of you right. is going to have all the money. But we right. all kind of look at it and go, we want to be the winner. We want to be the person with all the money. So we don't notice that actually most of the people playing this game are just broken. Um, so when I think of board games, I think of Monopoly and Candyland and Clue, um, which have all come out in about the last hundred years or so. Um, but one of the stories that you tell that really struck me was that um, in King Tut's tomb, they found a board game, which, by the way, it took a long time to figure out what that game was about and what the rules were and what the deal was with that board game. But people, I guess, have been playing board games for thousands of years. Yeah, we don't actually know how far it goes back. So the earliest archaeological finds we've got are around 3000 BC. So this is before ancient Egypt was founded. Um, so we could have been playing them way into the mists of time. We just have no idea how far back board games go. What we do know is they predate written word and we've been playing them for thousands of years. And do we know why King Tut was playing that board game? Like what did uh, people figure out? that it was ultimately what he was, you know, doing with that board game. Well, what they think it was is it actually became a religious sort of ritual in a way, a way to sort of interact with the afterlife and mm. the dead. So you basically the game represented a, a journey through the afterlife, um, according to the ancient Egyptian religion, and you would go through this journey and kind of, and they thought it, it'd be a way of learning your own fate. Um, it, even though it was random dice rolls, they didn't really sort of mm. see it as random. Mm -hmm. It was just, you go along and this tells you what your future in the afterlife is. And then if it's kind of bad, maybe you could change your ways. And then next time you play, it will be <laughs> more forgiving. So, um, because obviously at that time, people didn't really understand the concept of randomness. They thought it was some spiritual intervention was kind of controlling the dice. So I'm going to ask you about uh, a game I remember playing a lot as a kid. Um, and it actually inspired a movie that I've probably watched hundreds of times. And somehow it gets better when you watch it hundreds of times. Um, it's Clue, the, both the book and the movie. Um, where did Clue come from? And it's interesting now that I think about it, though I don't think I've ever thought about it before. It's funny that little kids play a game that's about murder. <laughs> um, but how did that come to be? So that started in Second World War. Um, so the guy who invented it, Anthony Pratt, lived in Birmingham in England. And at the time, he worked in a munitions factory. Um, and li life in wartime Britain, apart from when you had air raids, was incredibly dull. The cinemas were shut. There was no petrol. There was nothing to do but go to work. And then at night, you had to kind of put your blinds up, blow out your candles because the Luftwaffe were coming over and bombing. Mm -hmm. So it, it was kind of pockets of terror followed by days and days of tedium. And one of the things he remembered before the war that he really loved was this parlor game called Murder. It goes by different names, but it's where one one person in the room's the murderer and sort of taps someone on the shoulder and then they hmm. kill them and everyone has to try and work out who the murderer is. Okay. And so he, he turned basically took that idea and his love of Agatha Christie novels and so on uh -huh. yep. and turned it into um, Clue. Right. And that, that's essentially its origin. So he, he wanted to kind of recapture some of the fun he used to have in the 30s before um, war broke out. And was it um, immediately a popular game? It was a tough sell to the game publishers. Um, so he got a deal with in England with the company that published Monopoly over here. And 
they were like, oh, well, you know, murder, we're not, we're not too sure, but it's kind of all right. <laughs> exactly. That seems like maybe not your everyday family-friendly fair, a game about murder. Yeah. And then they tried to sell it to America. And the Americans were even more kind of, Parker Brothers was just like, we're family games company. We can't right. have a game about murder. Um, um, in the UK, Mr. Green is the Reverend Green. Okay. Um, so they were like, well, we're definitely not having a clergyman kind of cl- killing people. <laughs> <laughs> so they took Makes sense. Okay, got it. Yeah. And um, and the original <laughs> rules, I, I actually found a copy of sort of, you know, version where they were sort of making tweaks and they'd like crossed out references to murder and it all became the act, <laughs> things like that. So there was definite squeamishness about it. They didn't even put much advertising behind it. But obviously people bought it, told other people, and it just kept going and going. So from the 1950s right through to its peak in sort of the mid-70s, sales just kept rising year Mm. on year on year. And that doesn't really happen with board games. So all their fears about murder being (laughs) unacceptable for board games was proven wrong. Right. So let's talk about another game um, that was also similarly not considered all that moral, Twister. So I think of it as like a game that kids play at summer camp. Um, But you say when it first came out, there was a lot of resistance to it. Um, Do you want to talk about why? Yeah. So this is the mid-60s. And we kind of, you know, now look back and go, oh, the 60s is a big sexual revolution time. But at the time Twister came out, that hadn't happened. Um, So the Supreme Court rulings about right to contraception and summer of love and all that stuff yet to happen and so there was still this social awkwardness about kind of men and women who aren't married kind of getting too close to each other Hmm. so out comes this game twister which is like well let's get ourselves all tangled up trying to reach that (laughs) and that's quite racy at the time i mean it seems kind of ridiculous but that's kind of crossing social boundaries and one of the competitors at the time was like you're you're selling sex in a box this is outrageous (laughs) (laughs) sex in a box who knew that that i think of twister as something that like six-year-olds play mostly um but it's funny to think that people are so worried about it being so sexually charged yeah sears wouldn't stock it i mean they actually Mm. halted production because sears said we're not stocking that game is just too much um and luckily it got got a bit of break on um the tonight show um and on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? Yeah, that's right. Okay, um, okay. With Eva Gabor um, played it with him. Um, and that, that caught the nation's yep. attention um, and kind of saved Twister. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Tristan Donovan, author of the book, It's All a Game, the history of board games from Monopoly to Settlers of Catan. You write about how board games, which I think many people might think in some ways would have been displaced by by video games, by little games you can play on your phone, but just like the technology of games is so much more immersive now than like getting out Monopoly, that that those things would be sort of the story of the past. But you're right, that is really not true, that in recent years, board games have undergone a renaissance. Talk about that and like, why is that? Yeah, well, I mean, to give you a sort of idea of how big that renaissance is so 2011 sort of world board game industry was making about five and a half billion dollars okay. um in 2016 seven billion so it's growing wow. fast okay okay and it's big and i think there are several things happening there's a little bit of nostalgia in there but 
on the whole, the people who are getting into board games now are millennials. They're a bit too old for board games right. from a nostalgia point of view. You know, they've uh-huh. grown up with the video right, games. Right, 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 right. But I think in some ways the games are much better. So compared to the games that were available in the 70s, they're better designed. You, there's less luck. You don't tend to get eliminated from the game. Um, it's less clear who's in front um, as we all know from Monopoly, you have that stage where it's clear who's going to win. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also people are pushing back a bit against this idea that everything's got to be digital. Our whole lives is going to be lived through a screen. I th- and I think board games help people get away from that. It helps them connect face to face and socially. And I think there is a bit of a pushback there. I don't think people are kind of throwing their smartphones into the bin to play board games but I think it's an escape from that right and do you feel like this is back to the future like where was there a time when uh getting together over board games was there a time in the past when that was also sort of a fun thing to do a good date you know is this new or is this Retro in some ways in in some ways it's retro so um in Europe there were lots of chess clubs um, in the 19th century, um, which is where all the international chess tournaments grew out of. Um, And obviously they brought people together to play chess and have a drink with each other. Um, And also sort of, you know, the whole pub culture that you have here in Britain and sort of bars in America, um, often they had board games and people would sit down and play them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you'd have this traditional thing of you know, it might be chess or backgammon or something like that. It'll be there. Um, so in some ways, it's going back to what people have always done. In a way, we kind of lost that for a, a decade or two, but have now returned to it. You know, we've talked about, like, games of the past, like Monopoly and stuff, that reflected a kind of, you know, social struggle maybe or political issues of the time. Are there board games today that you would say these reflect are social or political issues now yeah absolutely um i think it's it's always harder to tell what they are when you're right in the middle of it but i think even a game like Catan, um it says something about sort of the german kind of viewpoints on the world that people even if when they're competing need to work together and i think that's Mm -hmm. a theme that's coming out on a lot of the newer board games that Mm -hmm. there's always a cooperative element um you get some like pandemic where all the players are on the same side some like katan where they're competing and there's only going to be one winner but everyone has to trade or cooperate with someone to some extent. And that's quite a contrast to the middle of the 20th century when all the games were about, well, who's going to win? And there's only one winner and everyone else is a loser. So it's become much more, um, I I guess, kind of teamwork-based games now compared to middle of the 20th century. Tristan Donovan is the author of the book, It's All a Game, the History of Board Games from Monopoly to Settlers of Catan. Tristan, thank you so much. Thank you. One final note here. Donovan says that chess, which is probably the most famous board game of them all, has undergone a lot of changes over time since its origin in India. One of those changes came during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance when powerful queens in real life 
were reflected in the growing power of the queen on the chessboard. We've got more about how chess has changed, plus our recent interview with the great champion, Gary Kasparov. It's at our website, innovationhub.org.